the middle of a pandemic, significant economic downturn, run up to the November election, so many things in the air that people are dealing with interpersonally, structurally, etc. On top of that, a recent spate of incidents, high profile incidents in the media of violence against black folks resulting in death um, in, in three to four to five extremely painful incidents ignited a firestorm of controversy and national unrest. I believe there were uprisings and protests in all 50 states plus 18 countries. We haven't seen this sort of response in a really long time. Many of us are ill-equipped to navigate the conversation at all. And I, I think it's such an honest thing to say that it just feels awkward to name it because a lot of the conversation right now is like, how do we not burden people of color in general and black people specifically about the dialogue, checking in on them? Is it okay to ask if we can talk about this? What can I do? Finding our footing, especially if you're new to this conversation, can be extremely, extremely challenging. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome back to the Best Self Management Podcast. My name is Shane Metcalf. I'm David Hassel. So we're really excited to have Willie Jackson back on the show. Willie, welcome back to the podcast. Shane, David, it's a pleasure to be here. So Willie, we, we had a really great conversation two days after George Floyd was murdered and kind of right before the unrest really kicked in. And we are in a very different world than we were now just over three weeks ago. So we, we wanted to have you back because we loved the conversation and it was a really powerful, just deep dive into some of the dynamics of race in business of the entire world of DEI. And you know, also, I just want to name that when we were recording, I also didn't know how to even address the murder of George Floyd. And it was kind of... You, know, you, you even alluded to somebody checking in on you at that point in the podcast. And I was like, yeah, I, I know what he's referring to, but my own awkwardness is kind of helping me... Having me not actually want to broach the topic. And not that that's what we need to make this show about today, but I just want to name that there's been a kind of accelerated evolution in even my own understanding of the, the conversation around race and around our role as business leaders in regards to that. I think the awkwardness that you name and how we started our conversation last time in the backdrop is a perfect entry point for why and how this is so difficult to talk about, which is to say, how do you react when there is an issue of police violence, in this case against you know another unarmed black man on video, right? How do we think about the harm that that does to our society, our civil discourse, and how does that affect people differently? So uh, again, zooming out, we're in the middle of a pandemic, significant economic downturn, run up to the November election, so many things in the air that people are dealing with interpersonally, structurally, et cetera. On top of that, a recent spate of 
incidents, high profile incidents in the media of violence against black folks resulting in death um, in, in three to four to five extremely painful incidents ignited a firestorm of controversy and national unrest. I believe there were uprisings and protests in all 50 states plus 18 countries. We haven't seen this sort of response in a really long time. Many of us are ill-equipped to navigate the conversation at all. And I, I think it's such an honest thing to say that it just feels awkward to name it because a lot of the conversation right now is like, how do we not burden people of color in general and black people specifically about the dialogue, checking in on them? Is it okay to ask if, if, if um, we can talk about this? Um, what can I do? It's like finding our footing, especially if you're new to this conversation, can be extremely, extremely challenging. So I just wanted to yeah. reflect back and validate that that's so challenging to begin the journey of doing. Yeah. You, you know, you had mentioned, because when I reached out and was like, hey, we want to record a little intro to the show and, you know, reveal ourselves a little bit. You had said something that was really interesting. I'd love you actually explain a little more. You said, yeah, well, you know, I, I can understand that you didn't want me to blacksplain this situation for you. And can you just explain a little bit around what blacksplaining is? Talking about race is awkward. It is challenging. And like anything, running a business, making money, playing the piano, it takes practice. And so if you haven't spent time doing it, it's just going to feel funny. We live in an environment, and we've talked about this. I'm not going to say a ton of new things, but we live in an environment where the stakes feel really high. And saying the wrong thing invites our canceling, invites embarrassment, invites shame. You know, And we're recording this conversation. So yeah. the, the stakes can feel really, really high. So th there is a temptation. I mean, and you're officers of a company. A lot of people look to you for leadership. You have influence in the industry. And, and I can see a version of reality where you'd want to be protective, defensive, and not even engage with this topic publicly because the stakes feel so high. So th th that's one thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is, you know, blacksplaining is just my cheeky way of saying, why not get a, a black person to explain to a, a dominant group audience what a particular thing means? It would be much easier for me to say some things because it's my job. I live and breathe this work. I have the identity that I have. I have a particular kind of lived experience. So it would be much easier for you to say, um, explain to us why we should be talking about these things. But one of the things that you're doing and modeling, and, and, and I've seen you do this as well, David, which, which I hope we can get into, is say, look, this is where I am. This is a growth edge for me. I have some feelings. I'm human like everybody else. And I'm realizing some things now that maybe were not obvious to me a week, a year, or a decade ago. And so the real question in the air for a lot of business leaders is, where do we go from here? It's so important. And I, I just want to say that, you know, I may say the wrong things on this in this recording, right? We, we, we may not get it all right. Uh, and I think... We're not going to learn. You don't learn anything until you start trying. And you never get it right the first time when you learn anything new. And this is an important thing for us all to be in conversation about. So I really want to encourage everyone listening to get out there and practice and not be so committed to getting it right. Because I've had conversations with people in my network who are saying, I'm just afraid of saying anything because I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. Well, and especially, you know, like the stakes being so high. Yes. We say one, we do say the wrong thing. And from either ignorance or prejudice or, or wherever that might be originating from, and we can, our entire careers can be over. And it's a, I think it's a, it's a good one to just pause on that the stakes are, have never been higher. And so there's a lot of disincentive to even engage in the conversation. Yes. 
it's like a catch 22, right? Because we actually want to engage. We want to make that space. I mean, it was one of the main takeaways from our conversation, Willie, is like, it's okay to make mistakes. We need, if we're going to engage in the conversation, we're almost guaranteed to make a mistake. If, if we're actually authentically engaging. Now that doesn't mean that those mistakes don't have impact and that those mistakes don't cause harm. I've seen a lot of uh, dialogue in social media where somebody comes out and says something, they're clearly well-intentioned, someone calls them out on it, then they get defensive and say, but wait a minute, I, you, know, I'm, I, I, you know, my intentions are good. And so that piece, I think, is, is a key thing to help people unwind so they can have the courage to go out and have conversations and still... You know, yes, you want to be well-intentioned, but you also have to recognize if you have impact, it is your responsibility to own that impact. So how do you help people navigate that really tricky emotional terrain and the fear that comes along with that? Oh, David, we could spend an hour just talking about some of what you and Shane just said. Let, let me focus on the discomfort first. So first, I want, to, I want to validate and underscore how human that is and how essential that is. And if you've lived a life where you haven't had to really sit with and dwell with discomfort, you're naturally going to want to solve for that. It is a natural human response for self-preservation to address discomfort. The challenge with the work around racial equity, inclusion, anti-racism, et cetera, I might have said that twice, is our discomfort is such a useful wayfinder, in particular for dominant group folks starting this work for the first time. What I often say is, I asked you to sit with your discomfort and see if it has something to offer you. Are you uncomfortable because of a particular pattern? Does it make you feel powerless? Um, do you feel destabilized or out of control? Um, is this merely a novel experience for you? Are you afraid of saying the wrong thing and being canceled? Have you been shamed before about getting something wrong? So a lot of this might have nothing whatever to do with the racial component. It might just be fundamental to your human experience. But what's layered on top of that, as Shane was talking about, is the stakes are so high and people are making mistakes really publicly. And so let's talk a little bit about the signaling piece. There is such a pressure right now for leaders and companies to make public statements about these issues. We stand in support of Black Lives Matter or we support inclusion in all its forms. And there's a very lively conversation. And I know this because I'm supporting half these companies. Um, uh, there's a lot of energy around how many of these statements don't feel good enough. It's like, no, you need to call out white supremacy. You need to be anti-racist. You need to say intersectionality. And and I just picture people on their computer saying, okay, okay, okay. And it's, it feels like a hostage situation. Like there's so much energy there. And, yeah, yeah. And, and because of our political environment, if you have an identity that people code as, you know, a minority identity, you're a black person, and you happen to be in one of these places, there's such a shift of perceived power and influence that a lot of people with power are being so, uh, I don't want to say overly deferential, but are being extremely deferential to some of these voices. And as some of that comes from a good place in, in writing historical wrongs. Um, but we have to figure out a way of sustainably working with each other. And I think that involves taking the long view, which is to say, this isn't just about what we do before and up until Juneteenth or July 1st, or what we do in Q3 and Q4. This is about how do we fundamentally bake into the DNA of our company an equity-informed view of what it means to attract, retain, promote, and elevate talent within our organization. Because you don't want to invite people into a burning building. You actually want a natural and organic process of people saying, hey, 
friends of all backgrounds, this is a fantastic place to work. I'm a better version of myself by working here, and I would love it if you joined me. Right. So if that can happen organically, if we can create the kinds of conditions where that can become true, that's how we create sustainable shifts around inclusion instead of these more tokenistic window dressed and saying the right things on Twitter and social media because you feel social pressure to and you've got to keep up with the Joneses and all of your friends who are executives are doing. It's like, okay, we have to do this. But then there's a disharmony between the actual work that's involved in the day over day. Yeah, I mean, I think that really speaks to, I was just going to say, Shannon, it really speaks to, you know, we debated when all this happened, like, oh my God, do we have to get a statement out? And I said, you know, yes, we probably need to say something, but saying something this week or next week is much less important than what we're doing a year from now or three years from now or five years from now. Let's take a moment. Let's listen. Let's, let's figure out who we actually want to be in this situation and not be motivated by the fear of looking bad or this desire to look good and, and virtue signal. Uh, but let's actually have the tough conversation about, are we actually going to make some changes? Because I know for me, I've definitely had some worldview shifts over the past month. Talk a little bit about that, David. What, what has shifted for you? Uh, there's a couple of things that have shifted for me. One is, you know, as a white man, I don't have the experience walking through the world where I experience racism or discrimination because of who I am. So in a lot of ways, I'm blind to it. And really peeling back the covers and doing a lot of reading and listening to a lot of stories to understand, wow, this is actually really pervasive to a degree that I never really fully got. Like I intellectually got it, but I don't think I fully got it. And how that manifested was that as we started having conversations about DEI inside of 15.5 a couple of years ago, I said, this is great. I want everyone to feel included. I want to have... I value diversity. We should do that. Great. People ops team, go do that thing. And... Right, and, right. You know, like, <laughs> we, we believe in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a part of the best self-management philosophy. Create a strong sense of belonging. Right. Inclusion. Let people tell their stories. You know, all those things were a part of our operating system. So I got that piece, but then it was like, oh, wow, no, this is actually, if our vision is to unlock the potential of every member of the global workforce, and, and we believe there, there is systemic racism and there is an unlevel playing field, we can't fulfill our vision if our society is this way. This is not just somebody else's problem. I think the other thing was for me that, you know, really understanding that white privilege is not like... I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth and I've never had challenges. It's just that, you know, someone posted a quote. It said, you know, white privilege is, it, it doesn't mean that you haven't had challenges. It just means that one of the things you haven't been challenged with is your identity and the color of your skin. And, yeah. and that really landed. It's like, oh, wow, I get that. I can see yeah. that. And, and then the other distinction around, you know, being not racist. Like in my view, I'm like, I'm a good guy. I'm not a racist. So like, that's not me. That's, that shut down all curiosity for me in the conversation. It shut down my sense of responsibility. And what I really came to realize was that if I fully take responsibility for the way our society is, and if it's not creating equality for all people, it is my responsibility. And the answer is not to just be not racist. It actually is to be actively anti-racist. And then being the inquiry of, well, what does that actually mean? And how do, how do I actually show up as a human being, as a friend, as a, as a, as a business leader in that? So beautifully said. Shane, what would you ask? I want to make a little space here. Um, that was fantastic. Yeah, well, and just a, there's a couple of interesting threads here because I think that if, David, if you had written the statement that you're writing right now, first week, right, as the protests are going on and there is, is that social pressure, employees are, hey, where's our statement? Where's our statement? 
And it was just, hey, okay, cool. Well, that says hashtag our way out of this. Right. It would be a very different statement than the one that you're writing right now. And, and really, it's, it's, I love you brought up the, the crafting of the statement piece because we are literally in that right now and we haven't released a public statement. We've released one internally that we also took a little bit of time to write and we're actively writing one, but there is so much pressure to, to say something and, and for good reason, right? It's not that, hey, that's a bad thing to create pressure for people to take a stance, but it's, it's recognizing that there is as much as we need to change external systems and structures, we need to do the internal work. And Sometimes that means shutting up for a moment and retreating and learning and educating ourselves. And I think that that piece can't be understated. And there's things I would do differently, but the process of actually examining the underlying foundational premise on which we've made our decisions and we form our worldview, I think is really where we're going to see large-scale shifts actually come from and is where I know that we will be able to create a new future for 15.5 and for to help our customers also create those new futures if we actually go to the root of what's generating this. I think that's such a, a key point to land on, Shane, the historical piece, um, informing ourselves about history, um, our complicated and painful and shared history is such a useful way of understanding what we can do in this moment. I'll tell you, David, I, I really resonate with a lot of the blind spots that you communicated in your story and in your transparency, because I grew up with what I would describe as a, a tremendous amount of privilege. Not that I grew up wealthy, that wasn't the case, or not that I grew, grew up you know, a, a affluent or had so many material possessions, but I didn't experience police violence growing up. I didn't experience underemployment or economic insolvency or, or, or stability. None of those things really characterized my experience. And in, in fact, I'm the product of a two-parent household, private school education um, for, for periods of my career. And I was not actively oppressed or, or actively marginalized in my subjective experiences growing up. I've had many, many wonderful professional opportunities getting to this point. Um, and I have the luxury of doing what I do for a living now. So th th that's important to name. There was also a turning point for me when the structures that disproportionately affect people who look like me was revealed to me. And that moved from intellectual understanding to an embodied understanding. And that tore me apart. So when I saw that history was still with us in many extremely painful ways and that my comfort and privilege was a symptom of other people bearing the burden of my comfort and, and the fact that despite my credentials, despite my advantages, despite my education, despite how great I think I might be in the world, in in exchange with somebody who doesn't actually know me, let's crank this all the way up to the 11 and say um, a fraud exchange with a law enforcement official who doesn't know that I need to go on and, and have a wonderful conversation with David and Shane on their podcast, that could end really, really painfully. It could be a fatal exchange and it might be of a piece with a pattern of harm and a pattern of violence that as a person who's the descendant of enslaved folks and I say this all the time, grandson of sharecroppers and the son of somebody who was born in 1944 and picked cotton in the Jim Crow South, there's a lot that has been transmitted to me 
epigenetically and generationally that I have to work out that simply can't be explained to somebody that doesn't have my identity in my body. So we're having a conversation at the interpersonal level. There are historical realities here, uh, and there are also structural factors that bear down upon people. So when I think about the pressure on leaders to make a public statement around these things, what I think about is 450 years of a certain people group not ever being acknowledged in a particular way, having their concerns invalidated. And we don't live in a context, we talked about this, we don't live in a context like West Germany where we have acknowledged historical harms and say, we don't do things like this. In fact, many of the schools in the city that I was born in, Jacksonville, Florida, are named after Confederate generals. And that might seem in the abstract like, you know, painful thing. And this is not uncommon. Like, you know, this is this is very common. This is very American. Um, but some of these Confederate generals were some of the most brutal, like even for, for them, for their context, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, look him up. Some of these folks were barbaric, even in the context of their time. So think about the experience of somebody who grows up not learning their history because it's been whitewashed, not learning who Nathaniel Bedford Forrest is, finding out one day that not only are they in this system that they're not able to get out, but that the very school that they've been enrolled into and the context in which they've been subscribed is deifying somebody who was horrible to people that look like them, not on the basis of who they are, um, but on the basis of what they look like. Yes. And, and when I think about the compounding historical impact, I think about the pressure on leaders to put out a statement because there are so many people who have for so long been just looking for acknowledgement that they have suffered and been harmed. Yes. Who has 30 minutes to unwind that? And who has, you know, you are busy. I mean, you, you have a meeting after this, like to bring president, like <laughs> we have a, a hard stop in 26 minutes. Right. And you also have the important work of being a leader to do, of personal growth to do, of keeping a family together, of keeping the 15-5 ship sinking. And there's no training for this. I mean, I could give you 15 books, but who are you going to throw on a podcast and like run until your legs fall off? <laughs> right. But yeah, there's a lot yeah. of work to do. So anyway, I'm, yes. I'm throwing a lot at you, but I just want to uh, underscore the gravity of how there's such few outlets for people who have felt harmed historically to be validated in their most essential humanity. And so there's just too much weight being put on the statement. So I love that you're being thoughtful well, uh, I mean, about the timing there, please. Yeah, I, I, you know, one of the things I've learned in interpersonal relationships and repairing if there's been harm done, if there's you know even a slight that wasn't intentional and you've, you've inadvertently hurt somebody else, the key, it seems to me, is the acknowledgement of that, is actually getting the other, even if you didn't mean it, but getting the impact on the other person and acknowledging that and expressing some sort of care. And I think that that's, that is the piece that I'm coming to realize is missing from this whole conversation. Beautifully said. Yeah. Uh, acknowledging and repairing harm is a key part of how we can show up for each other. And we just need it. We like, we absolutely need it. Like, how do you get on with something? How do you get past something when there hasn't been a validation of the harm that's taking place? Yeah. Right? I, I want to pick up on that thread. And you, you mentioned Germany. And I just finished reading Jared Diamond's book, Upheaval, uh, author of Collapse and uh, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel fascinating look into societies that responded in different ways to mass upheaval. He profiled six countries and one of them is Germany. And he really goes into, it was Germany's reconciliation of their harm. 
of what Nazi Germany actually did that it didn't do that willingly. It was actually mass protests, mass student protests that forced the leaders of Germany to actually reconcile the past, actually acknowledge the harm, and, and just admit it. Because then there can be a sincere, a truly sincere apology that can actually be cleaning up the harm. And I am praying that we as a country can have that same courage. And maybe we do need to be forced to it. Recognizing our essential humanity is what you, a line you said, and cleaning up and just acknowledging the past harm. And it's not just like of our generation, right? I think that we really need to actually go deep into history. We need to understand the atrocities that the current present moment are built on top of. You know, I, I feel really blessed. My high school was this crazy. By experiment and like all of our history was based on Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. So wow. when we were studying American history, that was our textbook. Wow. And getting to and it's just it's just making me realize like there is so much unlearning that we need to do. You know, like in order to learn what is true, we must unlearn what is untrue. And that's a big project, right? Like 15.5 is not going to solve an end systemic racism. We can play our small part. And business, I think, is this phenomenal Petri dish because it kind of forces us into interaction with people that we typically won't actually just normally gravitate towards. So that's where I think business is actually a really big piece of the puzzle is because it's not a choice to dive into these topics. It's actually being required of us yeah. right now. You, you said so much that's great there. So let's linger on, on Germany for a moment. You can't use and display swastikas in, in Germany. Anyway, you can't do that. And by contrast with the U.S., and I think a, a really telling symbol of where we are in our historical moment and grappling with our history, instead of displaying swastikas, many people who have neo-Nazi leanings will use a Confederate flag as a shorthand for that. So in, in Germany, they'll use a Confederate flag. The same Confederate flag, historically, that, that should be seen as treasonous, right? Like, because we know how the civil war went. And we know that the nation went to war with itself and something on the order of 750,000 Americans died for the right to own property. Like that is our legacy and that is our history. And that flag is flying over many parts of, of, of our nation, over state buildings. Again, when we see these monuments toppling and we see these cries for heritage and nationalism um, you know, rearing their head, I think there's a very valid conversation about heritage, about legacy, but we've never drawn a line in the sand and said, this is not okay anymore. In fact, we've elected a commander-in-chief who does not seem to be too excited to distance himself from people who have uh, deeply problematic historical views. And I'm biting my tongue um, in, in a particular way because like, there can be little doubt that 
the divisiveness that we're seeing at the highest levels of office is exacerbating the tensions and the harm that you're all seeing on a daily day-to-day basis, right? Because you know, to your point, Shane, work is where we spend most of our time in connection and human, you know, in uh, dialogue with our colleagues at work is where most of us spend most of our lives. And so there is a huge opportunity for businesses not to just recast themselves as racial justice organizations overnight. That doesn't have to be your mandate. But what you can do is say, oh, so this is how bias works. So this is how power works. So this is what I should be looking for in the interview process. This is how women of color are reliably paid, you know, 67 cents in the dollar, uh, d- depending on their identity. This is how boardrooms reliably look the way that they do. And this is how change is made. We incentivize referrals from underrepresented folks. We look to historically black colleges and universities, et cetera. We ask specifically and incentivize referrals from people that don't look like us, um, right? And we talk about why that's a value. And we don't just stop at cognitive diversity. We understand and really embrace this notion of equity, which we talked about in our first session uh, in Palm Springs together. Equity is this notion that we understand that the playing field has not always been level for everybody and that we need to have a forward-looking view of the fact that not everybody has been able to participate. So this isn't just like treating different people differently. It's understanding that in order to fully participate at a baseline level, we might need to radically reimagine how we're thinking about performance reviews, the stereotypes that get perpetuated, the training that managers get, because you know, as, as you know, and as we say, people don't leave companies, people leave managers. So you all have an amazing culture, but that doesn't mean that your best people on their worst day, might be perpetuating things that cause deep, deep and extremely painful harm for folks with minoritized identities. So uh, for our listeners, we just actually spent 90 minutes with Willie and his team at Ready Set doing a allyship training for our 200 people. And it was phenomenal. And what I really loved was, A, I loved the whole team showing up. So it wasn't just your perspective, but you had other people on the team that were contributing. And so it really, I think, rounded it out. But one of the the things I really loved about it is this idea of moving from allyship to accomplice or accomplice, I, I don't know, accomplice ship. Sounds like accomplish shit, you know? Let's, let's accomplish <laughs> some shit together. That um, works too. And so, you know, can you walk us through the shift from allyship to being an accomplice? Yeah, thanks, Shane. It was such a treat to facilitate that session with Magna and Brandon and, and the Mighty Mighty Reddit team, Vake, as well. Our Ally Skills training is by far the most popular thing that we do, and, and it's with good, good reason. It speaks to a lot of things that we've named here. We bring in a little bit of history. We bring our identities. We talk about power. We talk about repairing harm. And we talk about how do we activate our advocacy for folks, which is to say, um, if an ally is a noun, if an ally is the way that you see yourself, if it's a self-identity and what you wake up in the morning having checked a box around, an accomplice by contrast is what you're doing with that identity. It's a verb. It's a set of actions. It's your humility in action. So if an ally is looking for advocacy in a way that is comfortable to them, which is to say, what is one thing I can do before the end of this workshop, Willie Jackson, to be a good person or to feel like I'm on the right side of history or to support my colleagues? How can I do one and done? An accomplice by contrast says, I'm going to take the right action 
examining my power and my privilege, even if it costs me something. And so the accomplice frame, which sprung out of the indigenous rights movement and a critique of allyship, says that this work of advocacy, this work of being allied in action might cost me something. It might be my reputation. It might be my comfort. And God forbid, it might be my safety. But I'm going to put my shoulder to the wheel of justice because it matter. So it has that weight and that grounding and that gravity. So uh, if an ally is a noun, then an accomplice is a verb. What do you hope to see from the business world in terms of, of becoming accomplice versus just ally? What do you hope to see from 15.5? Like if, if you could guide us anywhere, not even you guide us, but if there's a secret hope in your heart that you'd like to see us go? I've never been more popular professionally than I am right now. Many of the seeds that I've been planting at workshops and conferences, public events and private events over the past two years are really starting to bear fruit. I can barely keep up with my inbox and I'm booking engagements a month out. That's hugely, hugely encouraging. My concern and my fear is that in six weeks, when we've all moved on, and tried to return to some semblance of normalcy, we will forget as a privileged subset of society that what is normal for a lot of folks is a baseline of harm and suffering and marginalization. So I think it's natural to want for things to go back to normal. Um, my fear is that we will forget that normal for a lot of people is suffering, it is fraught, and it brought about the conditions for the uprising that we're seeing right now. Tremendous, tremendous inequality, um, baked even to our tax code. Like We tax capital gains differently than we tax income, and who disproportionately owns stocks and gets benefits from that passed down uh, effect? Who disproportionately owns property? Right? Who, in living memory, wasn't able to buy property? So like this is baked into our culture. So my fear and my concern is that we will so quickly forget this period of discomfort and say, I'm so glad things are back to normal without realizing how privileged a statement that could possibly be, without committing ourselves to the ongoing work of making racial equity, anti-racism, and inclusion a part of our DNA. So my hope, Shane, is that this would be part of an ongoing conversation and bake into the fabric of who you are. As I often say, I hope for diversity, equity, and inclusion to be everything and nothing. One person can't hold it. There's a lot of research that shows how fraught the position of chief diversity officer is. I, I just sent a, a head of people a, a link earlier before we started recording. Many chief diversity officers go into those roles negotiating their exit package. I'm not sure if you've seen that research, if we've talked about it before, oh. but those positions are so fraught that people come in ready to leave. Mm -hmm. And if wow. you look at some of the chief diversity officers in the industry, they've made a, a tour of many, many companies because when you rest all of this work with one person, often a person that looks like me, and you strip them of the ability to make sweeping policy change and empower people to understand their biases and what they can do to become active contributors to this work, and you make diversity, equity, inclusion somebody else's job, then it becomes ineffectual yeah. and counterproductive. Yeah, I think that's that's a big that's a conversation we've been having, uh, you know. And I think that there is, uh, you know, I, I told the team I'm joining the DEI committee. It's not 
I don't, I don't want to delegate that fully to someone else. I want to, I want to hold that pole and Shane does as well. well. And, and what's interesting, David, is that like, that was literally like you were just saying of like, yeah, well, like DI sounds great. Okay, cool. People ops can handle that. Right. And that's the, that is the mindset that then has a chief diversity officer be ineffective. David, when, when you're showing up in that space, because you're um, the boss, as it turns out, and because of how power works, and we, we saw many challenging and sometimes painful examples of what it looks like to navigate power dynamics, I'm going to invite you to think about what it means to show up in that space and what it looks like to take space and, and to make space, to encourage and invite people to illuminate the uncomfortable gaps. And I, and I, I want to celebrate you really quickly. I hope I don't, I'm not speaking out of turn, but during our session, someone referred to a, a situation wherein you were more or less called out directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in no uncertain terms, they said, you know, you might've had a defensive reaction. And I didn't follow the transcript super closely because there was a very active conversation going on in chat. But I want to celebrate you for leaning into that discomfort, for acknowledging that, and for being transparent about your journey. Can you say a little bit about the exchange to the degree that you're comfortable going into detail? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we had recently done a, uh, a SWOT analysis in one of our leadership meetings. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And we decided, let's publish that to the to the entire company and get every everybody's feedback. Uh, one of our employees said, you know, said, I'd like to add a weakness line item in that we don't have any diversity in our C-suite. And so I, I originally said, well, wait, wait a minute, our senior leadership team, we've got 10 people. There's five women, five men. There's one, one black woman. We're not, you know, obviously 90% white is not where we ideally would want to be if we're, we're trying to be representative of the underlying demographics, but we're, we're very gender balanced. This, this doesn't feel like a fair point. But I hadn't really looked at it in terms of our employees saying, oh, there's this thing called a C-suite, which we don't operate with. But it was true that everyone with a C-level title is a white male. And I hadn't quite recognize that. And so initially I felt, well, this is an unfair accusation. They're not seeing the reality in the way that we operate and have everybody has a shared voice and shared power in this team. You know, I deleted my comment and I said, you know, I'd like to get on the phone with you and let's have a conversation. And I was able to really understand his perspective and really understand my own blind spot in that and take it to heart and say, well, you know, I I understand. And so we, we, we did get to rehash that exchange in the chat during your session, where I was able to express, you know, here's why I was defensive, here's how I came to see the perception and, you know, express appreciation for the feedback. And, and then you fired him, of course, right, David? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> 10 minutes ago. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's so powerful. And I think, I, I think what I'd love to underscore about what you just said is the lens that you have. Like, wait, from, from my perspective, there are all these identities here. But, you know, when you take a different point of view, you might change your perspective. So I, right. I love that you recalibrated. You arrested that response and you say, hey, let's get on the phone. And I want to underscore that as such a powerful leadership tactic as well in the response that we have, many times our conversations descend into anarchy and bloodletting because we try to (laughs) slack our way through the response and then we're defensive and then we're out of sync. And it's a context where, you know, we're being imminently reactive and what's coming at our screen is, is triggering us and we're defensive. But what we need to do is stop and take a deep breath and go high bandwidth, as my former mentor used to say. Get on the phone, get on video, let people hear the concern in your voice. Take turns listening because if people are typing at each other at the same time, that's not 
communication, right? You're, you're, right. Play, you're playing tennis. Um, so I just, I love that you stopped yeah. and you got on the phone because people need to hear that you care. You need to have the space for somebody to say out loud something that they might not be able to talk so easily and just permit the free flow of emotion and information in a much more high fidelity way. So I, I just love, I, I just love how you navigated this. So I, I think of this and examples like that being the front lines of social change. Like how else are you going to get to the place that you want to be day over day if you're not in some ways taking your blows? I'm sure that doesn't feel great to do. I'm assuming if I were in this position, I would be turning that situation over my head. I would be thinking... And, and thinking like, wow, you know, this totally didn't feel good. So I, I just want to celebrate how you're showing well, up in that because, the, the, you know, the, the road to, then I'll, I'll close it, the, the, the road to a better tomorrow, not to be trite, is paved with some bumpy todays. That was really trite. Well, well I just want to say one more thing on that, which is it, it was and is an <laughs> oh shit moment for us because we're realizing that, oh, wow. The, the five white guys on the leadership team are all chief executives and no one else is. Oh shit, we weren't even thinking of that. And that is a true statement. And that was, it was kind of innocent, but it also reveals our, our biases. That's going to be an ongoing one for us to continue to truly examine. It's super real. You probably have in a meeting where you say, all right, C-suite team, no blacks, no Jews, no women. Like it's probably not how you said, I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. That'd be kind of be hilarious if you did. That would be, um, but like, it's not something that you would intentionally design. It's something that tends to happen. And that reveals why it's vital to engage with this work. So the fact that that could happen casually without intention, the fact that we can be um, as a society so misaligned around what that represents at different levels actually shows the scope of the challenge. Like the fact that some people could not see that and other people can see nothing but that, right? When some people come to your about page or your leadership page and say, "Uh, can I see myself here? Because I don't map to any of these archetypes. Like the reason representation matters is because we're still looking to see what is possible for us, you know, as a cosmopolitan society. Well, that's, that's another big aha that I had that I didn't talk about was the importance of the rep- representation, not just having diversity so we can put up a, a picture on our page and, and make sure that the, you know, the people out there who are going to go after companies and post like, look at the lack of diversity here. It's not about looking good. It's actually about creating representation so that people feel included, so that people feel like they have an opportunity to aspire to those roles. And, and, and I think that that's in an ideal world, Leadership teams and companies would be as diverse as the underlying populace just because that's the way things happen. And we know that's not the reality today. So, you know, we have to be in this conversation to think about how to make those shifts. I want to circle back to one thing before we wrap up. And you had mentioned kind of your fear about things going back to normal. My hope is that there's like a new high watermark and things always recede and the moment passes and we go back to some whatever the new normal is. But I also see this, and this is a conversation I have with Shane, is that. I feel like this is an opportunity. This heightened awareness in this moment is an opportunity because all we're going to be left with when the intensity of the situation and the awareness recedes are the changes we made now, the commitments we made, the actions we took, the learning we took, who, who we actually became in this moment that carries on. And so I'm curious if there's like a top three list of things that for who's listening right now that you would say like, do this. If you're interested in this conversation right now, before it kind of loses awareness, go out and do this one, two, or three things to move the ball. That's such an important question. I think a key part of this is exposure. So 
there are plenty of resources available right now. And I think committing yourself to exposing yourself to different kinds of media could be really powerful. So, you know, there can be different kinds of books and resources and articles on the basis of where you are. So, you know, um, Seeing White is a podcast series by Seen on Radio. I think um, that was affiliated with Duke University. And it's a fantastic 14-part series on just the conception of whiteness, what it means, where the term came from, and just its history and how that relates. So that is a fantastic way of kind of getting your bearings about you when, you, when you're getting started on this journey. If you want to graduate to something that illustrates the historical harm, there's a powerful book called Slavery by Another Name that goes over what we call convict leasing, which many people didn't learn in school, a period after emancipation, where many black men and boys were uh, essentially rounded up and sold back into slavery for small debts, you know, stealing food, things, you know, because God, God forbid people would try to feed themselves after being released from slavery. So they were rounded up and sold back into slavery. And it was even more harmful in, in some ways because of the inhumanity there. I won't go into all the details, but there are some ways in which our history can unlock a powerful frame around why we need certain aspects of our history. So uh, this is a long-winded way of saying, instead of doing all of these things so much, commit to, in July, read this book. Commit to um, August, read this book, those sorts of things. So if you just start with a reading list, read actual books, don't just make it convenient, you know, seven-minute YouTube clips, there's great things. But if you can commit to carving out the space to reading three to five books by the end of the year, recommended by folks who do work in the anti-racism and social justice space, you will be so much better equipped to navigate these conversations by, by December. You won't need recommendations in the same way by the time January 1 rolls around because your personal curiosity will have been so fed and you will naturally be curious. And, and you, you know, once you see the system revealed, you're going to see it everywhere and you're going to see that you can do things and feel empowered rather than saying what's a checklist it can become simply who you are and yes. nuance to your perspective yeah. that's so great and that's you know that's the approach we're taking with our leadership team i think what what i'd love to do is actually get a uh, reading list from you that we can put into the show notes this has been great willie thank you so much been a great dialogue really appreciate it david and shane i so appreciate you thank you for having me again and i'll talk to you very soon Thank you to our producer, Counterweight Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 15.5.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you. Thank you.